Right, this is Access Reality. I'm Ali Kadili. I uh, have today Dr. Scott Solomon, who's an associate teaching professor in biosciences at Rice University. Uh, Dr. Solomon's main interests are evolutionary biology, ecology, and entomology. His book is entitled Future Humans Inside the Science of Our Continuing Evolution and gave a very interesting TED Talk, I think two or three years ago, uh, that was entitled Evolutionary Biology on Mars. So welcome, Dr. Solomon. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. So these days, there's lots of talk uh, about going to Mars, um, how to do it, the technology, the timelines, what we're going to do when we're going to get there, and some debate as to whether or not we should even go there or focus our efforts on Earth. Assuming we do get there and there's humans living there long term, generation after generation, um, the, as you know, the gravity on Mars is less than 40% of that on Earth, um, which is the gravity that our bodies have evolved to thrive in. So what would the effects long-term be of that on the people that go there now and then on the generations that are born there later on? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a really interesting question, right? And um, and one of my um, areas of focus in, in the recent past has been trying to, to answer questions like that. So as you pointed out, uh, there would be some uh, effects on, on the, the people who are the first to travel from uh, Earth to Mars um, and we know a fair bit about how spaceflight affects the human body by studying astronauts and cosmonauts that have spent time aboard the International Space Station and before that in, in the Space Shuttle and other uh, programs. Um, so we can get some insight into what the likely impact on those people would be for being in lower gravity. Um, although, as you point out, it's not a microgravity environment as uh, astronauts experience on the International Space Station, but about a roughly one third uh, of the gravity of Earth on Mars. So in general, we know that having lower gravity um, causes uh, a lot of changes to the human body. Um, and they have to do with things like the, the muscles and the bones, which become weaker without having to work against the force of gravity. Um, astronauts try to counteract that by doing a lot of exercise um, while they're in, um, in orbit. So it's uh, possible to minimize some of that bone and muscle atrophy and bone density loss uh, through exercise. But nevertheless, um, astronauts still return to Earth with weaker bones and muscles than when they uh, began their, their expedition. And that's typically for you know, uh, experiences that range from half a year to uh, at most about a year. For people going to Mars, just the journey there is going to take about that long. And so uh, if they spend any time on Mars, and uh, that means that they're going to be subjecting their bodies to a much uh, longer exposure to, to that lower gravity environment. But I think the question that you raised about multiple generations is an even more fascinating one, in my opinion. What we um, uh, suspect would happen is that uh, babies that were born on Mars would have even more substantial changes to their muscles and their bones. Because of course, our bodies um, grow in response to the environment that we are presented with. And we know that uh, you know, early childhood is a really important time for the growth of muscles and bones. Uh, the reality is there isn't research that looks specifically at that question. So we have to try to extrapolate from what we know 
about adults, but it's quite likely that later generations of people living on Mars would really have substantial changes to their bones and their muscles. Would it be fair to say that they'll be much weaker than us living here on Earth? Well, that's a good question. It depends on what you mean by much weaker, right? So weaker in the environment that they're living in on Mars? Um, not necessarily. It could be that the body responds so that they're able to perform functions on Mars perfectly fine, but that if, for example, they tried to return back to Earth, that they would find that to be uh, difficult, if not impossible, because if the uh, bones are growing in such a way that they are able to withstand that, uh, you know, roughly one third gravity or three eighths gravity on Mars, um, their bodies might not be able to sustain, uh, to, to, um, to withstand the forces that would be imposed on them by a full one G on earth. Their, their bones might simply be too weak. And that doesn't even take into account the forces um, that astronauts experience on uh, entering the earth's atmosphere. So to get from Mars to earth, you'd have to, to travel, and that involves um, the high G-forces that astronauts experience when they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. So it might become very difficult, if not impossible, for people who were born on Mars to come back to Earth. So what you're saying is that ultimately they will have appropriate strength for the environment there, um, but um, that's too weak to live on Earth for Earth's conditions. It kind of reminds me of that um, science fiction movie, uh, John Carter whereby uh, he goes there and now he has like superhuman strength because there's lower gravity on Mars. So he can jump like almost fly. Right, exactly. So, I mean, there's sort of two parts to it. One is how does the body respond uh, within an individual's lifetime to the, the local environment? And I think, yeah, you'd see most likely the body responding um, in ways that, uh, that you know, are, are typical of what we see on earth in terms of, you know, if you uh, do a lot of resistance exercises, you get stronger uh, bones and muscles. If you do less then your bones and muscles are weaker. But the other aspect of it is evolutionary change over generations. And that's kind of been my, my focus is to try to consider how uh, natural selection and other evolutionary forces might tweak the body in ways that go beyond just how it reacts. In other words, uh, there could be evolutionary forces at play that might take the body in unexpected directions. One example of that is um, if we think about the forces that the body experiences during childbirth, those types of forces would potentially make it very dangerous for women to give birth on Mars because their skeletons having been weakened by the, the lower force of gravity on Mars might not be able to withstand the forces imposed on them during childbirth. And if that's the case, then you get into a situation where um, women might be risking their lives and the lives of their babies by giving birth. So it's possible that natural selection would favor um, people who start off life with denser bones that would allow them to lose some of that bone density as they age so that by the time they reach childbearing years, they would be more likely to survive childbirth and therefore more likely to have a healthy baby. Um, any other effects other than on the musculoskeletal system from living chronically in a low gravity situation, the way our physiology and the blood flows, it's all used to a gravity of this magnitude. Any other effects that we know about? Yeah, we do know about some other effects. Um, and they have to do with the redistribution of blood and other fluids throughout the body. So astronauts often experience this feeling that 
their heads sort of feel swollen and puffy and there's a lot of pressure. And that's because um, the flow of blood and other fluids normally on earth is pushed downwards towards the lower part of the body um, uh, as part of uh, the way that gravity acts on the body. And that, uh, that blood is basically redistributed equally throughout the body um, in a lower gravity environment. Um, now on a, a you know, three eighths gravity environment on, uh, on Mars, it would be something in between those two. Um, how that would affect survival and reproduction is, is a bit unclear. I don't know that there would be uh, evolutionary changes to the way that, um, that those fluids operate, um, but the heart would not have to be working quite as hard to distribute blood throughout the body. So it is possible that the heart could evolve uh, to become in effect weaker because basically it wouldn't need to be quite as strong to push uh, blood throughout the body in that environment. Um, but the other thing that we see is um, changes to the eyes and to vision. And this is actually something that is a little bit less well understood. Um, astronauts often experience uh, some uh, vision problems during their, their time in space flight, and those can uh, lead to um, actually uh, permanent changes or, or chronic changes to their, their vision, um, even upon return to Earth. Um, we don't yet fully understand the physiology of what's going on there. It may have to do with changes in the amount of pressure that uh, the eye experiences because of the change in gravity. Um, so it is possible that, um, that our eyes and that, and that vision would be affected um, by living on Mars for a prolonged period of time. But it's something we really need to, to better understand before we can predict how that would change. I mean, my guess would be that there would be effects that we didn't even anticipate, uh, that we don't really think of as being affected by gravity. Um, but another yeah. issue is radiation, because, um, you know, as you know, Mars's atmosphere is less than 1% of that of Earth's, so it can't really protect from radiation. It doesn't have a magnetosphere either. Um, now, um, they're talking about people living in either enclosed places, like glass domes, so to speak, or underground, uh, which would shield from some of the radiation, but there would still be radiation, more radiation uh, compared to here. Um, what would the effects of that be on generations? Uh, on Well, on the individuals that are there, the, the first generation versus the ongoing evolution? I think this is a really important uh, factor. And uh, you're absolutely right that radiation uh, hits the surface of Mars at nearly full strength because of the uh, thinner atmosphere and the total lack of magnetosphere, both of which protect us here on Earth from uh, from space radiation. So I think the the short term effects on the first uh, generation of people living there um, would be increased rates of um, of cancer, right? Because we know that radiation exposure can uh, can lead to cancer. And basically, what's happening is that radiation damages DNA, and when the body tries to repair that DNA it doesn't always do that perfectly. And if it does it imperfectly, it can lead to a mutation, a change in the um, DNA code, those A's, T's, G's, and C's that make up our, our genome. And um, when you have a mutation like that, it can lead to, um, it can lead to cancer. And so cancer rates are likely to be much, much higher. That is obviously going to be a big health concern um, it could increase the mortality rate substantially among the first generation of people. 
Um, in the long run, um, there could be some interesting evolutionary consequences of having that increased radiation exposure. Those same mutations or similar types of mutations, the, the fact that there are mutations being caused by uh, radiation exposure, one of the things that means is that there's also the opportunity for helpful mutations, mutations that rather than causing cancer or some sort of a negative consequence could actually just by chance lead to some sort of a change in our biology or physiology that would actually make us uh, better at dealing with the, um, the, the different environment that we'd be experiencing there, whether it's um, the, the lower gravity or, um, or simply the, the effects of radiation. Just as in a hypothetical example, if a mutation popped up that um, made uh, people better at um, uh, resisting cancer or, uh, or um, surviving cancer, you can imagine that would be really beneficial under the circumstances and that would uh, quickly become much more common in each subsequent generation. So it's actually an increase in the mutation rate uh, is one of the consequences. And that is fascinating because what that suggests is that it could actually speed up the rate at which evolution occurs because uh, the rate at which evolution occurs is really controlled by two factors. It's the rate of new mutations that enter the gene pool and um, how advantageous any of those mutations happens to be in the environment. Now, this is a super interesting point. Um, do you not think that the rate of mutations realistically would be too slow to actually change the species, so to speak, given the small number of people, even if it was a million on Mars? And the other issue being that, you know, normally when we talk about evolution, these uh, processes of uh, these natural selection would mean that a mutation gives you an advantage so that you live, whereas the other people who don't have it die. You live and reproduce. Um, whereas an environment like that on Mars, you know, unless somebody gets cancer and dies from that, the rest, even though they don't have the advantageous mutation, would, we would still make sure they live. Yeah, so you're bringing up some, some important points about how um, evolution operates in uh, humans living today and people today. And, and so actually this was the topic of, of uh, my book, which you mentioned earlier, Future Humans. Um, and what I do in that book is to basically look at the various ways in which natural selection and other mechanisms of evolution have continued operating in humans up until modern times. And then I try to project into the future to consider some of the ways, including space colonization that um, our evolution could change in the future. And yeah, you're right that uh, we sort of tweak natural selection today by having some ability to control who lives and dies and, um, and how much uh, each of us reproduces. But we don't have complete control. Uh, there still are uh, aspects of who lives and who dies uh, and who reproduces and who doesn't that are essentially out of our control. And uh, it seems likely that in uh, such a radically different environment like Mars, we would have even less control over those factors than we do here on Earth. So um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's certainly the case that we would continue evolving. Uh, natural selection would continue to play a factor. And um, you know the basic sort of facts of how evolution operates suggest that if you have an increased mutation rate, that will uh, at least create the possibility for, for faster evolution. I mean, basically natural selection has to have two things, right? You have to have an advantage for one trait over another trait. 
and you have to have uh, variation in that uh, trait in the first place. Uh, and ultimately that variation comes from mutation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could think of um, a mutation that protects someone from infertility due to radiation and that person would reproduce more. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, um, let's, assuming that natural selection gets its way and that's how things evolve, um, would the tendency be for humans generally to get darker? Well, that's an interesting question because we do know that the uh, pigment in our skin called eumelanin, which uh, is the pigment that affects how light or dark our skin is, um, what that pigment does in large part is to provide natural protection from ultraviolet radiation, which is, um, you know, uh, sunlight. That's what causes us to get um, you know, a, uh, a tan or, uh, or to have a sunburn. Um, and so ultimately having more melanin in the skin provides some natural protection from uh, ultraviolet radiation. And so because of that protection, it is possible that people with darker skin would have some sort of an advantage over people with lighter skin in that high radiation environment and might be more likely to survive and pass on their genes. So you could see natural selection favoring people with more uh, melanin in their skin with darker skin in later generations. It's also possible we could uh, have mutations that could um, lead to, to new ways to protecting us from radiation, perhaps through the, the evolution of new types of pigments. We actually see this here on earth. Um, and there's some examples for, uh, of um, organisms using pigments like carotenoids, which are the pigments that give carrots their orange color, uh, which can provide some protection from radiation. So it's possible that um, not only could people develop uh, darker skin to protect from radiation on Mars, but even new skin colors as a way of uh, providing some protection from radiation. Yeah, I mean, I think we see on Earth here that uh, generally speaking, African populations, but also Asian ones are also protected relatively from skin cancers. And even though those two colors are very different. Right. So there's, uh, it's actually quite interesting. There's been uh, some fascinating studies on how skin pigmentation uh, varies across uh, human populations and how it corresponds to the amount of ultraviolet radiation hitting the surface of the earth. And there's actually quite a strong correlation between how much radiation hits the earth and, uh, and how much melanin is in people's skin um, in a way that suggests that uh, our skin evolved as we spread across the earth to um, protect people that were living in areas that had higher radiation, like closer to the equator, and also higher elevation, both of which are places where uh, the light, the sunlight hits the earth with more intensity. Um, and in those places, it was advantageous to evolve more eumelanin in the skin. But at the same time, we see in places with very little um, UV radiation, like uh, the Arctic, for example, very high latitude populations tended to evolve lighter skin because in those places is actually detrimental. It's actually harmful to have too much uh, melanin in the skin because of course we need to have some amount of sunlight for our bodies to be able to make vitamin D. You know, you go out in the sun and you get, uh, you know, just a little bit of sun exposure and you get your, your vitamin D. Um, if that melanin is blocking the sunlight, that makes it harder for the body to actually 
synthesize vitamin D. And that can lead to issues like not being able to absorb calcium and make a, a strong skeleton. So things like rickets can develop when um, uh, people don't have adequate amounts of vitamin D. Which is extra important when your bones are not doing well because of low gravity. Exactly. So having sort of um, appropriate levels of, uh, of eumelanin in the skin is something that we know has been important in our evolutionary past. Now today, that's uh, something that we can regulate a bit more because of course we have sunscreen to, to help protect us from the sun and we can take vitamin D um, as a supplement if we're not getting enough of it from the sun or from our diets. Um, and so it's possible that, you know, in a, in a colony, say on Mars, that we would be able to deal with the, the vitamin D issue through, through our diets. Um, but nevertheless, it, um, it does seem possible that uh, skin pigmentation could evolve in a way that would help with protection from radiation. All right. And uh, now going um, to a different planet kind of raises all sorts of issues. Some of them are ethical and some of them intersect with uh, genetics. And I think that um, a lot of people had, had argued that um, it's in our best interest to have a wide variety of uh, genes in the pool of people that ultimately end up in Mars. And I think you had mentioned in one of your talks that uh, you'd recommend that the majority be from Africa because of the increased variety, um, increased genetic variety in, in Africa. Is that correct? So the idea is that you're right, that having more variation is very beneficial for a number of reasons. One is that um, having more variation simply is a better representation of all of humanity. So if the goal is to sort of have um, a, uh, a almost like an arc in the sky, right? A, a, um, a, uh, a way of sort of ensuring the long-term survival of humanity in case there was some disaster here on Earth, which is one of the main motivations for, for colonizing other planets. Um, then of course it would make sense to try to have all human populations represented to the extent that we can. Um, but from a genetic perspective, having genetic variation is like a hedge against uncertainty in the future. Because as I was saying earlier, the more variation you have, the more ability a population has to evolve in response to changing conditions in the future. So to be able to better adapt genetically and biologically to conditions on another planet uh, as they are now or as they will be in the future, it is beneficial to have as much genetic variation as possible. So if you look at the distribution of genetic diversity across humans on earth, um, what we see is actually, interestingly, we don't even have that much genetic variation compared to what we see in other species, even compared to our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees, humans have much less genetic diversity than what we see in chimpanzees. Um, but the it's majority- because, It's fascinating because uh, I think most people would agree that humans look different. There's more variation in how they look to us versus all chimpanzees kind of look the same to us. Or is that because we're humans? Yeah, some of that might be might be that the chimpanzees look similar to us because we're not very good at differentiating among the, the you know differences that are important to chimpanzees, whereas we tend to be acutely aware of whatever tiny differences exist among among different humans, at least in outward physical appearance. But yeah, I mean it is remarkable because you know chimpanzees there aren't that many of them. They're they're <clears throat> they're endangered, and yet uh, despite their small size, there's more difference from one chimpanzee to another than you see from one human 
to another. And the, the reason for that is, has to do with our, our population histories. So for chimpanzees, up until recently, there were a lot of them, and thanks mostly to us, their population sizes have drastically reduced in the recent past. Whereas for humans, it's the opposite. Up until very recently, there were not that many of us. And of course, our population has exploded in size in just even just the last few hundred years. So um, basically, our genetic diversity hasn't yet caught up with our actual population size. Um, but yeah, if you look at where the genetic diversity is distributed to the extent that it exists, uh, the greatest amount of genetic diversity in humans exists in the continent of Africa and in populations that are recently descended from, from Africa. Um, and the reason for that is because that's where our species evolved. That's where we first uh, came into existence. And it was, um, you know, between 200 and 300,000 years ago that Homo sapiens first came into existence. And only about 70,000 years ago or so that uh, any Homo sapiens left Africa they left over land going into the Middle East and then spread into Europe and Asia and eventually made their way to Australia and North and South America. Um, as we expanded across the, uh, across the earth, um, it was small bands of individuals that, uh, that were the pioneers. And that meant that um, only a small number of genes would make it into each of those populations. So genetic diversity decreases as you move away from Africa. And that means that the greatest diversity today um, can be found in Africa. So if we wanted to just maximize genetic diversity, and we could only take a small number of individuals, the best bet would be to draw as many of those individuals as possible from Africa. Very interesting. Um, how about if you had a group from that consisted of people from Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, you know, that group, wouldn't that have more genetic diversity than a group that is just from Africa? Well, there's actually more diversity within Africa than there is in the rest of the world combined. So that's why I was saying if you just wanted to maximize diversity, you know, you'd be you'd be uh, good if you if you sort of drew from African populations. But of course, in reality, we're going to want to be maximizing more than just genetic diversity. We're going to be wanting to um, have cultural diversity represented. We're going to want to have um, different skills and abilities represented. You're going to want to have people, as we do with uh, astronauts who are very highly trained and um, have certain um, not just physical but also mental attributes and so I would imagine we would ideally like to have a global selection in which we take the people who um, not only represent humanity but also um, are, are most likely to succeed in, uh, in a mission to Mars and in establishing a colony. And there's a lot of different factors that you might want to take into consideration in order to do that. Um, so, you know, for this to be successful though, you really don't want to have a small number of individuals. You really need to have a fairly large population in order to maximize the chances of, of success and to increase genetic diversity. So I would, if I were, you know, doing the selection here, I would say we need, you know, to have a population of at least a few hundred thousand individuals, if not a million, and you want to maximize genetic diversity as well as all of those other factors. Great. Um, now, you're a biologist, which means you've spent um, a great deal of your career um, thinking and studying and teaching about animals. And you've also thought about uh, Mars and the conditions on Mars. What would be, what would an animal evolved perfectly to live on Mars today look like? What would that be? What would be the characteristics of that animal? 
That's a really interesting question. I mean, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, most of my my research uh, is not actually on humans. I've written quite a bit about humans and and human evolution, but my research background and area of expertise is actually on ants. So I spent a lot of my career uh, studying um, ants in different parts of the world and understanding their their biology and their evolution. And actually, uh, you know, I may be biased because that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about. But I think ants are actually a, an, an interesting model for thinking about how to um, how to build a civilization on Mars. For one thing, we were talking about the radiation exposure on the surface, and so a lot of the the models for how we would actually build habitats on Mars involve going underground because going underground provides natural shielding from radiation. So how do you build a society underground? Well, that's something ants have been doing pretty well for about a hundred million years. So I think we might be able to look at, uh, at the architecture of ant nests and um, examples of ants like leafcutter ants that actually engage in agriculture. So leafcutter ants, grow a crop uh, underground. The crop is a type of fungus and that's their food. And so when they're cutting leaves, they're bringing those leaves underground to feed it to a fungus, which ultimately will be their food. So they've figured out ways to not only uh, keep all of their individuals underground, but also to raise crops underground and crops that don't depend on sunlight like, like most of our crops do. So that might be an interesting model to look at for how how you not only design a, a, a structure, but how you even carry out agriculture in a, a, an environment where you're better off being underground. Now, I know this is not your area of expertise, but have you come across um, anything talking about the suitability of the soil on Mars to growing anything, assuming that the radiation and the atmosphere are not issues? Yeah, so there are uh, some studies that have tried to use simulated Martian uh, regolith, as the, the soil there is called, to try to grow crops. And um, so the biggest concern, as far as I'm aware, is that Mars uh, regolith has high levels of um, uh, perchlorate. And perchlorate is something that is typically uh, toxic um, to plants and to humans. And so that is one of the big concerns about whether it's really even going to be feasible to grow crops in, uh, this regolith that contains this perchlorate. Um, and it's, as far as I'm aware, still an unsolved problem. I think it's something that, uh, we would need to be able to sort out before any long-term plans can be, uh, carried out because of course you have to have a way to grow your own food. There's no way to sustain a society, on another planet if the food can't be grown there. Um, so, you know, growing crops in that type of regolith, that's some, something that we need to, to look at. Um, but also figuring out how to um, have livestock if we're gonna have any sort of, um, you know, uh, animal protein in our diet. Um, we need to figure out what that is gonna look like. Um, usually all of our livestock depends uh, on the ability of those animals to, to eat uh, plants at some sort, whether it's, you know, cattle grazing on grass or whether it's grain that we're feeding to, you know, um, uh, you know, chickens or, or other uh, sources of um, animal livestock. Uh, one interesting possibility on Mars is the idea of rather than bringing birds and mammals, which are large, take up a lot of space, need a lot of water, um, and are also potential sources of disease, it might be better to bring insects as uh, animal livestock, which, 
you know, the idea of eating insects isn't something that uh, uh, all people are comfortable with. Um, although actually many cultures um, uh, routinely use insects as a, a source of animal protein. Um, insects are really have a lot of desirable qualities when it comes to a, a source of food because not only are they healthy and nutritious, but they require a lot less space and a lot fewer resources like water in order to maintain them. Um, and as an added benefit, uh, it's very unusual for diseases to um, switch from an insect host to a human host, but that happens a lot with birds and mammals. Are they as susceptible to radiation? Yeah, all living things are susceptible to radiation. So the types of evolutionary changes that I was talking about that could happen with humans could also happen to our livestock, to our crops, um, and also to the microorganisms that we bring with us, whether it's wittingly or, or unwittingly. And all of those things are going to be evolving uh, rapidly, just um, in the same way that we will be, except that with shorter generation times, they evolve even faster. So yeah, so they're going to be going through these, these uh, rapid evolutionary changes as well, something we'll have to pay attention to. Interesting, because we know like um, here on Earth, as if um, the reptilian life forms have less genetic diversity, evolution seems to be a lot slower in them compared to mammals. Do you, is that true? Well, I'm not sure that it's slower. What you might be referring to is the idea that you can see forms that exist today that are very reminiscent and very similar to forms that existed in the past. So for example, you know, alligators and crocodiles today look a lot like alligators and crocodiles did in the Jurassic period. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the rate of change of evolution is slower. We actually see rapid evolution even in some, um, in some species of fish and some species of lizards. There's some really famous studies of uh, lizards in the Caribbean where we see very rapid evolutionary change happening um, across the different islands of the Caribbean. Um, so uh, actually the rate of change is just different for every species on earth. And it has to do with those factors we talked about earlier, the, the rate of mutation and how much of an advantage there happens to be in the particular environment they find themselves in. Oh, so the idea that reptiles have much more genetic stability, so to speak, than mammals is just a myth. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's much truth to that. To be honest, I'd have to. I'd have to see some, some sources to see uh, who, who's claiming that. But uh, not true as far as I'm aware. Okay, great. Um, now, um, the um, there's lots of talk about, uh, and you just mentioned this about um, introducing germs um, or microbial organisms to Mars from us. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, what we know is that we can't live without microbes. I mean, we used to think of all microorganisms as germs and things that we need to be, you know, killing in order to, to keep our, ourselves safe and healthy. Um, but today it's becoming very clear that, um, that we live in a microbial world and that our uh, health and well-being is ultimately tied to the uh, microorganisms that are both in and on our body and also in the environment. What we don't yet know uh, is which microbes we have to have in and on our bodies and which are ones that are sort of just along for the ride and we could live just fine without them. So this is something that we really need to be um, better informed about before we could uh, do any sort of meaningful, um, intentional movement of microbes 
to uh, Mars or other planets, right? I mean, we want we don't want to leave Earth without the microbes that we know we need in order to survive. Um, but this is luckily this is a, a very active area of research right now. So on balance, would you say that we shouldn't really be worrying as much about us introducing microbes into a, a new environment? That it's just well, part of it's part of what we are. So what you might be thinking about here is is there is concern about um, if we want to discover whether life already exists on Mars. There's a lot of concern about whether we might uh, detect a life form on Mars before we arrive there that actually isn't native to Mars, but is something that we brought with our uh, rovers, our probes, our machines that we've sent there. So there is concern about contaminating a, a quote unquote pristine planet, pristine environment with uh, microbes from Earth. And that is something that we need to be aware of because of course the discovery of um, microbes that are uh, indigenous to Mars would be one of the greatest scientific discoveries in history. I mean, as of right now, we don't know whether life exists anywhere outside of planet Earth. Um, and uh, we would very much like to know if it does for a lot of reasons, um, in order for us to be able to determine with any certainty that anything we find on Mars or elsewhere is native there, we need to be very careful about not accidentally introducing things. Yeah. Now, as you uh, alluded to, the, um, uh, the active area of research is in the microbiome, which is all the bacteria and genetic material, which is massive that one human body carries. And there's uh, lots of evidence in medicine that variation in that will reflect in disease. Um, so presumably that will change uh, through exposure to radiation, either from the trip or from being on Mars. And so the um, effects on health would really be unpredictable. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to think about how the microbiome would be affected by, by going to Mars. I mean, for one thing, um, yes, the radiation will be affecting each of those microorganisms. So those microorganisms have the ability to, to evolve uh, themselves. But the other thing is that um, we're, the, the microbes that make up what we call the microbiome, all of the collection of bacteria and other microbes that live in and on our body, uh, that's something that we acquire through the process of birth and early in our childhood. Um, as far as we know, babies in a utero, in their, uh, you know, uh, when they're still um, within their mothers, they don't actually have a microbiome. So we uh, acquire those microbiomes um, very early in life. Uh, we primarily get our microbes from um, our mothers, from our, our fathers, from our siblings, and from other uh, people that we come into contact with, but we can also get some of them from the environment. And on Mars, again, as far as we know, there aren't any microbes in the environment. So we'd only be getting them from one another. And so in other words, we will only have access to the microbes that we bring with us. So that's why, again, it's important to understand what are the microbes that we need to live uh, uh, you know, healthy um, uh, lives? And what are the microbes that we could afford to to lose without suffering any consequences. So, um, so yes, we really need to understand this better um, and make sure that we, we don't leave behind any, any important, uh, you know, members of the team, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, 
um, we talked about natural selection and ultimately um, let's say that that ends up playing a massive role in evolution of the species that remain on Mars. Um, what's the, when do they stop being humans? When do they stop become, when do they start becoming a different species? Like what threshold you have to cross to be designated as a new species? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, and unfortunately it's not one that has a simple answer. So there are, there's actually no universal definition that all biologists agree on for what makes a species and how you draw the line between distinct species. One of the most uh, popular definitions has to do with the ability to, to reproduce. So we would say, you know, two, uh, two individuals are members of the same species if they can mate and have, uh, have a baby, right? Um, so if we use that definition, that gives us a, a fairly straightforward way of uh, sort of drawing the line and saying, okay, uh, you know, people living on Mars, if they evolve to be so different that they wouldn't be able to have a child with someone on Earth, then we would call them a, a distinct species. Um, it is possible that something like that could happen. Um, there's also definitions of species that involve physical changes. If you look very different, sometimes we'll use that as a way of defining species or um, uh, genetic differences. Oftentimes we'll just look at the DNA of species. Um, this is especially true for microbes because of course they don't have a lot of outward physical characteristics for us to look at and they don't reproduce sexually. So you can't apply that definition. So there you looking at, you know, how much genetic change has there been? That's the definition that is most likely to uh, apply quickly to people living on Mars because of the factors that we talked about earlier. They're likely to um, undergo a lot of mutations very rapidly um, because of all the radiation exposure and natural selection. So I actually think that no matter which definition you apply, it is quite possible that we could get um, what we would consider to be a new species of human evolving in a colony of people living on Mars or elsewhere in the universe. Yeah, now using the criteria of reproduction of, of two members of a different species being able to reproduce, we see that on Earth all the time, right? We do. With horse, horses and zebras and, you know, donkeys and that kind of thing. Um, Correct. Yeah, so, but is the, is the criteria then that that offspring will also be able to reproduce? Yes, that's right. We, when This is uh, a definition known as the biological species concept. And really what it is, is, is not just being able to produce a living offspring, but an offspring that is also fertile, meaning that it can go on and reproduce, not, not a, an evolutionary dead end, right? So you want to uh, be able to continue to perpetuate those genes from one generation to the next, and we consider that to be successful reproduction. Okay. And then going over the genetic material criterion, uh, again, there's no quantitative definitions there, right? In terms People of what try to, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a, like a percent of different, you know, percent difference, but the amount of, uh, of genetic difference from one lineage to a next to the next really, um, you know, it, it varies across different types of organisms. So it's hard to apply a, a, an absolute threshold that would be, universal across all different forms of life. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, assuming that uh, the atmosphere and radiation issues on Mars are not a problem, that's a massive assumption, I know. Um, but let's say you had a human population living there. Um, would they be able to just come and walk around here and would vice versa? Well, I think there's a couple of factors there. I mean, one of them is the, the gravity that we were talking about earlier. So it's possible that 
people who you know were born and grew up on Mars uh, simply wouldn't be able to withstand the the forces imposed on their on their bones um, and muscles by a, a full one G um, that they'd experience on Earth. But the other goes back to um, microbes. So uh, you know, um, it's possible that people living um, on Mars would be um, living in an environment where there aren't as many infectious diseases because we, again, would only have the infectious diseases that we would bring with us. And if we don't bring uh, birds and mammals as livestock, like I was talking about earlier, and we only have, um, you know, maybe a purely uh, vegetarian diet or an insect-based um, animal protein diet, that minimizes the chances that new infectious diseases would pop up. About 60% of the infectious diseases that we experience here on Earth um, came about because a, um, a microorganism was infecting an animal. It's almost always a bird or a mammal. And it switched hosts and started infecting humans. And this is, you know, this is what happened, of course, in the uh, coronavirus that's causing the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but we've also seen this in you know, in HIV and in influenza um, and lots of other, uh, you know, Ebola, lots of other examples of um, infectious diseases that switch hosts. And so without those other animal hosts as reservoirs of disease on Mars, um, there would be very few infectious diseases that could affect people living on Mars. What that could mean is that the immune system of people living on Mars would be potentially fine as long as you stay on Mars. But if you came back to Earth, that could be a very, very dangerous situation because you'd be exposed to a lot of microorganisms that you might not have any natural resistance to. So this is really reminiscent of what happened to Native Americans when Europeans first arrived and spread uh, smallpox and other diseases that devastated those Native American populations. You might see something similar playing out between people living on Mars and people on Earth. Hmm. Yeah, isn't that what the War of the Worlds movie was about at the end? Was that in the yeah, end? That's the, 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 the great thing about this is there's been so much science fiction that has explored all of these possibilities. But what's amazing about the, the era that we're living in now is a lot of that science fiction is uh, becoming or very close to becoming actual science. Hmm. Wait, and if I just may ask, um, what um, as a biologist, what got you interested in human evolution in particular on Mars? Because I don't think that's a, you know, a natural thing for a biologist to be uh, thinking about. Yeah, it actually goes back to, well, in some ways it goes back to, you know, when I was in college, I took some anthropology courses and became fascinated by, by human evolution and, and the study of human evolution. Um, but more recently, um, it started when I became a, a university professor at, um, at Rice and I started uh, Rice University in Houston. And I started teaching um, a course, an introductory biology course where I was teaching students about evolution. And like any new professor, I wanted my students to uh, be engaged and interested in the material. I wanted to, them to see how evolution is relevant to their lives. And, you know, I think a lot of people think about evolution as, as what happened in the past and often in the very distant past. We think about dinosaurs and fossils and uh, even in the study of human evolution, we're often thinking about things that happened millions of years ago. But I wanted to make the point that evolution is also a process. It's not just 
uh, about history. And so I asked my students if they think humans are still evolving and if so, in what ways. And that got them really talking and they had a lot of questions and ideas. And, um, and so I, I got interested in that question and I started looking up, well, what, you know, what do we know about this? And that's where I discovered that uh, we know a lot, but it's sort of scattered across a lot of uh, different disciplines, a lot of, you know, um, technical scientific literature from, from all different fields. So I set out to try to put all of that information together into a single book, which became uh, my book, Future Humans. And it was really only in the very end of that book where, you know, my main goal was to try to, to, to make the case that, um, you know, we can use what we know about the past and what's happening now to make projections that are scientifically informed about the future. And, um, and I tried to do that throughout much of the book, but I, I didn't want to write it without giving some uh, thoughts about our long-term future. And that's where I tried to explore in my final chapter, what might ultimately become of our species. And I basically look at three possibilities. One is that um, we become extinct, which could happen. Uh, another is that we essentially go uh, on indefinitely unchanged, more or less the way we are now. But the third possibility is that we could evolve into a new species. And that's where I started to look at, well, what would it take for us to evolve into a new species? And I look at a couple of different scenarios and one of them was colonizing space. We know from what happens on earth, every time uh, individuals uh, colonize an island, say, if a new island pops up in the ocean, um, some plants or, or animals arrive there, they often undergo rapid evolutionary change because of the isolation. And uh, that's really very reminiscent of what would happen if, uh, if humans left the island of planet Earth and moved to another island out in space like Mars. Hmm. Would you agree that the, when you look at the evolution of the human species in general, um, it'll be very different in the past from what it is going forward with technology and the culture and how that's kind of shaping and impacting, playing with the forces of nature, so to speak? Yeah, that's a big thing that I try to, to um, explore in, in the book is to what extent culture influences our evolution today. I mean, there have been some in the past that have argued that actually, you know, natural selection doesn't even exist anymore, that it's been essentially replaced by culture and cultural evolution. Um, but I, I try to make a case in the book that, um, that we can't really say that natural selection has stopped. It actually is quite clearly still operating. What culture does is it tweaks natural selection. It changes the way that it acts. Um, and so we have much more control today over who survives and who re reproduces, but we still don't have complete control. And so that leaves us in a situation where um, natural selection is still operating. It just operates in a way that's very different from how it operated 100,000 or a million years ago. Hmm. Great. And you talked about how your anthropological influences got you to think about evolution on Mars for humans and colonization of space. Uh, did you ever look at or think about other places other than Mars that humans could be at? Titan, some other place? Yeah, I think the same general principles would apply anywhere. Really, isolation is a major factor in evolution in any place where the physical environment is different than Earth, which is every place that we know of. Now, there's you know the possibility that in the even more distant future, we might be able to um, colonize an exoplanet 
that is very Earth-like um, in another solar system. And if that's the case, then perhaps we wouldn't go undergo quite as many um, changes to adapt to the physical conditions, but we still have to get there. And the journey to an exoplanet, uh, which could take generations, uh, could lead to evolutionary changes on the way there. Um, so, you know, uh, the specifics of how we would evolve would, of course, be different depending on what um, the physical conditions are in each place. But the idea that mutations, natural selection, and isolation are going to influence us uh, would hold true no matter where we go. So with today's technology, if we found a suitable Earth-like exoplanet, by the time we get there, it's generations. By the time we get there, it's no longer suitable because we've evolved. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of uh, you know interesting possibilities there. For example, uh, you know, people have talked about you know, putting humans into some sort of cryo storage or something to slow down aging or slow down, um, you know, uh, you're freezing uh, sperm and eggs in order to try to sort of uh, jumpstart our species once we arrive in such a place. I mean, that that technology is far, far away still. So it's hard to, to even think through how that would work exactly. Um, I've sort of focused on Mars because it seems to be the consensus for the, the most likely first step beyond Earth for a long-term human settlement, a long-term human colony. I mean, the moon is another possibility, right? So efforts are already underway, um, for example, at NASA to create a, a lunar base. But for the most part, that is, at least for now, uh, likely to be something where people go and stay there for a while, but still return back to Earth. It's so much easier to get from Earth to the moon and back again compared to Mars. And so um, the closer we are, the less that isolation starts to play a role in, um, in our evolution. So, you know, a lunar base might be perhaps not that different from, say, the scientific bases that we have in Antarctica, where people go there for a season or in some cases more, but usually not more than, um, than a year at a time. They spend a lot of time there and then they return home and they might go regularly, but they're, they're not uh, living there. They're not reproducing there. Um, and that is ultimately what matters most for evolution. So all the things we're talking about are changes that would play out if you have a self-sustaining human colony that involves uh, reproduction, babies that are born there and have their own kids over, over many generations. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Solomon. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.